0: Getting rid of the blue check marks is basically an invitation to anarchy. We are now in an era of deep fakes. To have this new system out is kind of an invitation for lots of malfeasance.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, March 28th. Today, Eric Gardner joins me to discuss the tangled legal web of Elon Musk. One of his companies, Twitter, could be inviting a flood of lawsuits with the implementation of Twitter Blue, making it easy for anyone to get that precious blue check mark and possibly impersonate celebrities and journalists. And over at Musk's other company, Tesla, a trial kicked off this week to determine just how much money should be paid to a black former employee who was subject to racial harassment at the electric car maker. And later, Bill Cohan stops by for an update on the banking crisis, the collapse of Credit Suisse, and whether the contagion is going global. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing well. I want to talk to you today about a couple issues involving Elon Musk and his companies. One isn't actually something I thought had much legal relevance, which would be in your lane specifically, but it turns out it does. And that is this plan that Elon Musk implemented to basically get rid of the blue check mark verification system that currently exists in a pretty haphazard way on Twitter, I must say, and replace it with Twitter blue in which subscribers would pay $8 a month to get the blue check (laughs) mark. That would probably cause all sorts of mayhem. Anyone could suddenly become a blue check mark person and look like an expert or a journalist.
0: What's the legal angle here? Should people be worried about Twitter blue? Well, I think so. I think that Elon's gonna live to regret uh, this move. I mean, first of all, we have to go back to the very beginning, why the blue check marks were adopted in the first place. People forget this. I mean, this this happened a million years ago, but at the time there was a lot of impersonation on the site. Tony LaRusso, a baseball manager, sued Twitter. Uh, there were celebrities like uh, Kanye West and Shaquille O'Neal who were complaining. And uh, this was Twitter's way of basically, you know, vouching for the people who are on their site, you know, this person is who they say they are. And that was a very valuable service. And it, it, you know, it convinced people to go to the site because you were seeing real life people and, uh, you know, famous people and, and, and all that. It only later became this kind of status symbol, you know, where, you know, people started attacking the blue checks, some sort of, you know, denigrated elite system. But that wasn't the original purpose for it. Flash forward to now. I mean, getting rid of the blue check marks is basically an invitation to anarchy. You know, it's is it just gonna be a lot of confusion out there? We are now in an era of deep fakes and, and all sorts of manipulation. And to have this new system out is, you know, just kind of an invitation for, you know, lots of, you know, malfeasance. And I don't know what Elon's going to do about that, but I do know that it's going to invite a lot of court cases. It's going to invite a lot of hassle on his end. And if he thinks that he's going to be protected by Section 230 or or something, uh, he's wrong because there there are lots of loopholes in that for intellectual property and trademarks and famous faces, you know, are arguably exempt from that. So this is going to be a, you know, a hassle for him.
1: You've seen some of this impersonation already start to happen. Monica Lewinsky actually tweeted over the weekend an account that had a blue check mark called Monica Lewinsky. And then she like posted a screen grab and went over to the account that's not Monica Lewinsky uh and it says this account is verified because it's subscribed to Twitter Blue. So, what's a scenario where Monica Lewinsky, for example, could sue Twitter? Like under what claim?
0: Sure, say, you know, someone out there come comes out and pretends to be Monica Lewinsky uh and registers for for Twitter Blue and gets a check mark. And then and then this fake Monica Lewinsky, who's given the blue check mark, uh says, Go visit this porn site that I've that that you know I'm affiliated with right now. And people do that and people think, okay, Monica Lewinsky is recommending to me. To go see her porn or something like that, and if you're Monica Lewinsky, you're gonna, you know, say, you know, I'm not affiliated with this, uh, you know, and so you you sue uh, Twitter, you might sue anonymous users, and I'm not just making up this scenario because this this scenario has actually happened in court. Um, there's right now there's there's a court case happening in in Philadelphia where the the news anchor of that of a morning show there is suing Facebook over sort of fake ads that were run without her permission that used her, her face and, and all that. And the, you know, the court allowed this to continue. They said that you know, section 230 isn't a shield for this sort of thing. So I think that you know Elon's going to face similar stuff, and you know it's not it's going to go beyond uh, you know Manelikulinski. It's going to be huge brands. It's it's funny to me that that they're removing check marks on uh, April Fool's Day. (laughs) That's just like you know the perfect uh, you know scenario for for lots of you know trouble happening.
1: Yeah, I must wonder if he's doing that on purpose because he's such a troll at this point. (laughs) So changing companies, changing Elon companies. To talk Tesla here, a trial kicked off in federal court this week, basically trying to determine how much money Tesla should pay a black employee who was subjected to racial harassment uh, when he worked at uh, one of the company's assembly plants. And basically, in a previous trial, he was awarded like a
0: huge
1: verdict, wasn't he? $137 million, I think that's right. But Tesla's trying to get that number back down. Right. So this is what happened.
0: The first trial happened and Owen Diaz, the former Tesla employee, convinced the jury that he was subject to a hostile workplace. And the jury awarded him about $7 million in compensatory damages and $130 million in punitive damages. It was the, the largest race harassment verdict in American history. And then- the uh tesla's lawyers they went before the judge and they said this was unconstitutional under supreme court precedent uh you can't award that big amount of punitive damages relative to compensatory damages so the judge came back and cut it to 15 million dollars and said okay if uh, the plaintiff Owen is accepts fifteen million dollars, we can we can wrap this up. And the plaintiff said, "No, I don't want fifteen million dollars. I want more, and I'm entitled to you know retry this case. So this second trial is happening. Uh, he's already proven that Tesla has racially you know discriminated against him and all that, and it, he's just trying to prove his damages." The trial is going to happen. The parties are going to be restricted to basically what happened in the first trial. And the jury is going to come up with a new damages figure. And then it's going to go on appealing. It could be very interesting uh, where this appeal goes because, you know, the appellate courts are going to take a look at basically how to assess damages in cases like that. And uh, it's, it's interesting and, and very consequential.
1: So what, what was the actual nature of the harassment against this employee?
0: Uh, He was repeatedly taunted with the N-word. There was racist uh, graffiti uh, right near where he worked. Uh, It was just like, episode after episode of racial strife at this plant where he worked and uh, he presented evidence that basically his bosses, you know, looked the other way and, and didn't uh, do much. Um, now, one of the things that, that Tesla is trying to do now is they're saying that that they have you know, a racial inclusion person who came in and fixed the stuff. They're going to try to argue that the jury shouldn't assess huge punitive damages because they've taken care of their problems and uh, O.N.D. as my might you know turn back and say, "Well, you haven't really done as much as you think you have." Uh, so we'll, we'll see about that. I, I think there's uh, not too much room for both sides to really expand from the fir- first trial, but there is uh, you know s- certainly the interesting element of Elon Musk having to show that Tesla has become uh, woke in the last five years.
1: Aren't there a couple other lawsuits related to this? Tesla plant in Fremont and, and racial discrimination.
0: Yeah, one of the things that they are facing is that the California Civil Rights Agency has brought a class action, and so I spoke to Owen Diaz's uh, lawyer, and his theory was that Tesla can't really bend on the verdict because this is not just a hundred thirty million dollar stake for them. This is you know hundred thirty million times the you know thousands of employees that they that they have. Following this trial, the California Civil Rights Agency will be pursuing their own trial and trying to to make the case that, that Tesla needs to compensate all the rest of the employees as well.
1: All right, Eric, thank you for filling us in on all that. Uh, as usual, Elon Musk has his hands full. I don't know how he has time to do anything, <laughs> given how much is going on in his professional life. Thanks so much, man. My pleasure. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about all the uncertainty in the banking
2: Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Hey, Ben. Bill, you went on vacation for just a few days last week. And in the meantime, this banking crisis went global. Credit Suisse has basically disappeared overnight, absorbed by its rival, UBS. What's the sort of upscale Cliff Notes version of what actually happened
3: here? I know everybody was uh, focused on Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which, you know, they were surprising developments um but non existential uh, threats to the system i don't I don't think i mean I hope I don't end up regret saying that um and I don't think the departure of Credit Suisse from the scene is either, but it is far more momentous than the loss of S- silicon Valley bank i mean uh credit suisse um has been around since the you know 1850s. So you had Credit Suisse, you know, this Swiss bank, this national champion, buying two of the most respected investment banks on Wall Street in the period of you know 15 years or so, and effectively wrecking them both and uh, destroying a 150 year old plus company in the process. It's not existential. It's not going to threaten the financial system. But it's a real watershed for somebody who grew up on Wall Street in the 80s um, and, you know, once uh, either worked at or competed against uh, First Boston uh, or DLJ.
2: Yeah, I mean, what the uh, the Swiss banking regulators did here is pretty extraordinary, right? I mean, obviously, Credit Suisse is one of um, a number of global, systemically important banks. And, and and so they they moved really quickly here, basically put a gun to the head of UBS, which didn't want to buy Credit Suisse, and, and Credit Suisse, which didn't want to be sold, forced them together, wiped out bondholders, right? Which which is pretty remarkable, maybe unprecedented. Talk to me a little bit about how that came together and sort of what precedent it's going to set. And talk to me about what kind of consequences or ramifications there might be for other banks in global markets.
3: Look, the whole thing was uh, extraordinary and done extraordinarily quickly. And um, uh, again, shotgun, wedding, I don't think either side wanted it for a few days. UBS resisted and then it capitulated to uh, what the authorities in Switzerland, banking authorities wanted to have happen, which was, you know, these two national champions to combine and to stanch the bleeding. The reasons remain a mystery. Uh, The facts are not a mystery. Um, They paid, uh, you know, roughly 90 cents a share for Credit Suisse's stock totaling about $3.25 billion. Which was already
2: down like 95% over the last couple of years to start with, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, the decline of Credit Suisse has been at least, you know, five years in the making here. This has been one scandal after the other with some hits to its reputation, certainly, and to its balance sheet. It just seemed like a a bank, you know, completely out of control and not knowing what to do to right the ship. And, and, you know, this bank has had some pretty, you know, impressive leaders over the years, including, you know, John Mack, who'd been uh, CEO of Morgan Stanley and then went to Uh, Credit Suisse, and then came back to Morgan Stanley and Brady Dugan, uh, you know, a highly respected uh, first Boston investment banker who was the CEO before Tijan Tiam. So yes, the bank had been losing a lot of altitude for, you know, probably seven or eight years. The stock had lost 95% of its value in the last five years. So UBS paid $3.25 billion for, you know, the stock of the, of the bank. But then as part of this, and this is highly controversial, uh, Ben, and there's going to be litigation around this for years uh, if it's allowed to stand. And uh, this was sort of decreed by FINMA, which is the regulator uh, in the equivalent of the SEC in Switzerland, uh, was to actually zero out um, $17 billion worth of what are referred to as cocoa bonds or you know, additional tier one capital bonds, AT1 bonds that were, for whatever reason, that were trading at a severe discount because they're not only risky, but the whole operation was risky. And so the credit default swaps of Credit Suisse were exploding and the trading of these bonds were trading at a severe discount. And uh, the regulator just wiped them out, which it would be one thing if, the equity got zero because the equity is, of course, below the debt in terms of the absolute priority rules of a bankruptcy or, you know, just generally speaking in these situations, the creditors get paid before equity holders. That's the way it is. That's the way of the world. So to disrupt the way of the world is, needless to say, highly controversial. So, uh, you know, the the fact that the $3.25 billion went to the equity holders instead of these debt holders is just asking for serious litigation. And when you've got uh, a bunch of hedge funds who own those bonds, uh, you know, who have deep pockets for litigation, you're going to get litigation. So, you know, if the bank had gone into bankruptcy like Lehman did, then, you know, you'd have a two or three year fight over the carcass. And at the end of the day, in this situation, if it had been like Lehman, you know, those bondholders would have gotten something, some recovery, certainly before gotten some recovery before the equity holders. Uh, but obviously it did not go into bankruptcy, it was bought by UBS. And for whatever reason, these crazy Swiss authorities thought that it would be cheeky to pay the equity uh, holders who did not get a, a vote, uh, by the way, in this merger, which is or acquisition, which is itself rather stunning.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose it speaks to just how volatile and dangerous this situation has become globally that the the Swiss just wanted to force this thing together and, and slap a bandaid on it before it got any worse. But, um, Bill, I'm I'm curious what you think is going to happen to Credit Suisse's investment bank, which they had agreed to spin out under the leadership of our friend Michael Klein. Uh, he got this sort of amazing deal, if listeners remember, where he got 10 million dollars to advise on the. Uh, Credit Suisse turnaround plan. And then it turned out that his, his plan involved them buying his company for $175 million and putting him in charge of the new company. It sounds like UBS is not too keen on any of this. There's going to be a ton of redundancies as these two companies come together. But what do you think is going to happen to uh, to Klein and this investment banking business?
3: I think that deal is dead, 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 dead. I assume he probably get his the ten million dollar fee that he bargained for to, you know, advise on this quote-unquote restructuring, he was on the Credit Suisse board, so the fox was in the hen house. Got himself uh, not only this ten million dollar fee. I mean, the guy just has a way of always landing on his feet and always making a lot of money. I think it's going to be a bloodbath among, uh, you know, Credit Suisse investment bankers. Because, you know, UBS, as I said, has this love-hate relationship with its own investment bankers and always has. But, you know, if you listen to our friend Arya Borkoff, who used to be, you know, one of the heads of investment banking uh, at UBS, it's always been a tough slog for uh, the UBS investment bankers. So they certainly don't want these credit suisse investment bankers, except probably in a few industry areas, maybe tech, media, that kind of thing. So most of these uh, Credit Suisse uh, investment bankers are going to go uh, bye-bye uh, into a market uh, that is uh, quite dicey for investment banking at the moment. If you think back 15 years to when the Bear Stearns was bought by J.B. Morgan Chase and a lot of investment bankers hit the market, you know that was a much better time to be uh, trying to get a new job in investment banking, much tougher right now you know, it's going to upset the whole uh, investment banking ecosystem, to be honest. A uh, lot of high-priced investment bankers hitting the market right now.
2: Bill, before I let you go, over the weekend, First Citizens Bank agreed to buy a huge chunk of Silicon Valley Bank uh, at a big discount. So it so good for them. And uh, presumably this takes some of the pressure off of the banking system in the U.S. Do you think this is going to help convince people to stop pulling their money out of these mid-sized banks? There, there's this kind of slow motion bank run that is continuing in in part because the the interest rates in these banks are just so much worse than than throwing it into a money market fund do you think we're sort of in the middle of the story um, the beginning of the story what what's the next uh, shoe to drop
3: well these things are like you know slow motion car wrecks 15 years ago we thought that drawing the line at bear stearns would uh, and the financial crisis. So yes, we have to save Bear Stearns. It's too interconnected to fail. And so we will, We'll do that. And that should be the end of it. But of course, uh, it wasn't um, it only uh, was the beginning of it. and it took six more months uh, before, you know, the contagion and the loss of confidence became absolute and hit. Lehman and Merrill and Morgan Stanley and almost Goldman and AIG, et cetera, et cetera, to become truly uh, existential. It doesn't feel that way now. I think, um, you know, the FDIC, by guaranteeing bank deposits of any amount for another year, probably restored confidence in, I mean, should restore confidence in all the banks, whether regional or not. you know, there was, uh, you know, a flight to quality. You know, a lot of people thinking they should also have a bank accounts at JPMorgan Chase. Fine. JPMorgan Chase doesn't want those deposits. They're paying basically zero for them. And then, you know, funneled a bunch of them. This is, I find, really humorous. Um, they funneled a bunch of those deposits that they got back into First Republic, you know, to uh, try to shore up First Republic. First Republic. And arbitrage the spread between what JP Morgan pays its depositors, which is basically zero, and what First Republic was paying its depositors, which was much more than zero. So now that money just goes to JP Morgan Chase. <laughs> so the rich keep getting richer. So, yeah, I'm sure people are rebalancing, redeploying, you know, their money. Uh, But, you know, most people don't have more than $250,000 in their checking or savings accounts, Ben. And so they should just do nothing. But people like to panic, you know, so they may want to do things, but they don't need to do anything. We remind listeners
2: that this is not investment advice, but uh, pour one out for Michael Klein and for the Credit Suisse bondholders. Bill, thanks as always.
3: Thank you, Ben. Always a pleasure.